welcome to the Beer of Honor podcast, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. With me is uh, Jeff Allworth, Beer of Honor blogger, author, uh, author of the Beer Bible, the forthcoming Beer Bible from Workman Publishing. Workman Publishing. And when is it out? August 2015. August 10th or 11th. You can pre-order now at palace.com, betterpalace.com, amazon.com too. But uh, Cider Made Simple is the book you're working on now. Uh, Cider Made Simple is completed. It will be out in September 2015. And of course, everyone knows Jeff's blog, Beervana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. Also blogs at uh, Beeronomics, where he talks about the economics of beer. Blogs from time to time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the pod. What's our topic today, Jeff? I think we're going to talk about party guile brewing, an obscure almost entirely lost art. And we should give some context. So when you were doing research for the Beer Bible, uh, you and I took a trip to uh, beautiful Great Britain in, I think, November of 2011. Is that right? That's right. Um, the time you should always visit England is November. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I was there. Uh, I think I figured out why, 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 why I was there. Uh because you need someone to drive you around like all over the place to all these crazy little towns. It's true. You, we started out in London and we ended up uh, driving most of the island all the way eventually up to Edinburgh. And um, uh, thanks to some poor, poor navigation by, by me, we took some rural, funny back roads. <laughs> well, and you particularly needed me, I, I, I figured out, because you're too cheap to rent a car that had automatic transmission. And so uh, I'm left-handed. And as you know, for a manual transmission car left-handers have an advantage because the gear shifts on the left-hand side. Okay, we could be off in the weeds here. Uh, party guile brewing, something about that? Uh, party guile brewing. So our first stop was the Fuller's Brewery in Chiswick in London, where we discovered. Where we discovered that they do this weird, old, crazy brewing style that we, we were kind of unaware of before we got there. That's right. So uh, a lot of Americans know Fuller's. Uh, for its legendary ESB. I think that's the one that Americans get most here. It travels better than the other ones. Right. They also brew something called uh, London Pride and uh, Chiswick Bitter. Uh, what's interesting about those three beers is that they all come from a single brewing process, essentially. Right. Uh, we were really surprised to learn how this these three beers, which in, we're going to taste these a little bit later on, and um, we, we were... Uh, unaware that they all kind of come from the same brewing process, the same, the same kind of mother batch of beer, uh, because they don't, with the different gravities, they don't actually taste all that similar, or at least we didn't, we didn't think so until we realized how they were brewed. Yeah. We'll try them again today. So, so describe, describe the process of party guile brewing. What, what is, I mean, what's a guile to begin with? All right. A guile, a guile is a good place to start. So Long ago, before uh, modern brewing techniques, the, so let's let's actually let's go back just a little bit further. When you make a, a beer, you start by mashing the grains. What you do is you cre essentially create a beer tea where you soak the grains in water, wash the sugars off of them, and uh, then you ferment that. Add add hops and boil, ferment that. Back in the olden days, what people would do is they would just put the grains in with water and then flush the water out and boil that. And that was the beer. That, that thing was called a guile. And weirdly, it took a long time for anybody to figure out that you could actually rinse water over the top and 
wash more of the sugars off. And this is called this is a process called sparging. It was actually your people, the Scots, who figured this out. Uh, uh, good for us. Yeah. So so wait a minute. How long did it take them to figure this sparging thing out? Because it doesn't seem like it's that difficult. And I know it's it's amazing. It, it was around 1800, maybe a little bit before that, that they figured this out. So they've been making beer for thousands of years, and this is the same they made. So the, the word guile is an English word, but they did this in in, in uh, uh, the Czech Republic. They did this in uh, Britain, and they did it in Belgium, especially. They would do these crazy mashing regimes. Nobody really figured out sparging until about 1800. This was it was an innovation that actually postdated uh, steam power. So breweries were already using steam power before they figured out sparging, which wow. is kind of inconceivable. That is fantastic. So one so the, the thing about party guiling is what the breweries would do is they would take one of these, they would do, some, some people know a little bit about beer, I've heard about this, they would make a, a regular beer and then they would make a small beer after that. So they would make the first mash, take the first runnings off, put more water in, make a second mash and pull that off. So then you had a strong wort and a weak wort and you blended that to get several beers. So the way Fuller's does it is they blend, they, they make one big batch of beer and the strongest gravity beer that they make out of that is uh, Golden Promise, which they don't make very much of. And then the next one is ESB. The next one is London Pride. And the last one, which doesn't have very much of the first one, the first big batch in it at all, is uh, Chiswick. And so that's how they make it. So they start with the same grains. All of these things have the same grains and the same hops. The only thing they differ on is the gravity. Yeah, and that's what's that's what's interesting. I mean, I think if people have... If people know anything about this process and if they've encountered this, they've probably encountered the small beer phenomena. There's a few local breweries here in Oregon who have done some small beers. Uh, Hair the Dog does a little dog. That's a small beer off its uh, – I can't remember what. They do t – I know they do at least a couple. They do a, a little little dog uh, off Fred and a little dog off Adam. So Yeah, you, and Oakshire did one. The, the Ill-Tempered Gnome I think was a small beer. Is that right? I think it was the big beer, and then they did a little beer. Off oh, okay, that. yeah. So anyway, uh, but this is this is different. This is what I I didn't understand until until we uh, we visited the brewery. And by the way, the brewery is an amazing place in London. It's on the banks of the Thames. It's a brewery that looks as if it has not changed in hundreds of years. And is, it, and the brewery site actually so uh, Fuller's was founded in 1845, which for English breweries, it's not especially old. They, mm -hmm. Some breweries go way back. But the Griffin Brewery that they inhabit goes back to the 1700s or maybe even the 1600s. I can't remember. But it's the, the brewery site. So like when you look at a, a bottle of Fuller's, it always says, brewed at the Griffin Brewery. Well, that Griffin Brewery predates Fuller's. So that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, and it's pretty fantastic. We were taken down to their caves. But in the back of the caves were the were – the, was basically the access to the Thames where they could load up the, the boats that were carrying the beer uh, to different parts of London. Um, so, uh, we actually first encountered the Fuller's beer in one of their lovely pubs in London. And I believe that was the first time that I'd had London pride on, on tap. Uh, and it certainly didn't suggest to me, uh, ESB that I had known before. And what was interesting, we, we so we did an experimental party gal brew. Uh, we brewed our own first and second runnings, I guess. Uh, and what struck me at the time and what I hadn't realized is that we brewed exactly the same beer, exactly the same proportions, uh, that time, uh, including the, the, the malt, but also the hop schedule as well. 
So essentially, the second beer was and sort of a, a smaller but identical first beer, so that when we blended them, we were blending the the beers together with the hops in them. And that's what's really interesting to me. And this is exactly what Fuller's does. Uh, they they make two batches of beer. One is a strong batch and one is a weak batch. And then they blend those two batches, only two batches, to get all four of the beers that we talked about earlier. And since we're so intrigued about this and how they taste, maybe we should crack Yeah, crack let's, crack, let, let's crack the beer open. Okay, so in front of us we have a London Pride, which is the – now, is this what they would call the best bitter? Yeah, I think it's. it's I think this bitter. is the best bitter. Chiswick's, Chiswick's the bitter, and ESB is the extra special bitter. Okay, so we have a London Pride and an ESB. So let's crack these open. Try to get these close to the uh, close to the mic. That's right. The audio. You have to experience the full process here. Lovely. These, of course, have crossed the pond, have sit, sat in warehouses, have sat on shelves, have finally made their way. Uh, to our table here. Yeah, and, and and actually there are slightly different versions that they put in the bottle than they serve on cask. Um, these are slightly stronger uh, formulations, and so it's not it's not exactly the same. And of course, in in when you taste these beers on cask, the cask presentation is is different than the bottle presentation. In any case, it's really the way these beers are meant to be served. So we're we're not getting. It would be much better if we were sitting in in London right now. It, tasting these beers, yeah, it would be, but, but we'll we'll do what we can. So uh, why don't we start with the uh, the London Pride? All right, seems to be the, the start. Actually, let's let's, hmm. let's smell these. Let's compare the two. Hmm. The uh, the ESB is uh, that's not a fresh bottle. It's got a little bit of a uh, oxidation. The, yeah, the ESB has oxidation control. Right there. <laughs> Sorry. By the way, this is this is much fresher than the other bottles that were up there. This one is supposed to be. Best before August of 2015. The other bottles that were up there were best before January of 2015. And we're recording this in May of 2015. So, London Pride is um, one of my fa favorite cask ales in England. We, we travel all over the place. And in terms of um, a bitter that you want to spend an evening with, I don't know that any beer exceeds London Pride. Uh, it's... It, ESB is more of an American-style beer, and it's, I think, 5.8%, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. London Pride's below below 5, which is pretty weak for most Americans. But when you're having uh, three or four of those Imperial Pints, you don't want a 5.8% beer. That's just too much. Yeah, yeah. The, the pub culture in England is really to sit for quite a while and drink a lot of beer. Uh, and in order to do so, they drink much uh, uh, less uh, strong beers by in terms of alcohol mm. so that they, they both to me they both have a little vo little oxidization but um but they still the, the the flavor comes through and really quite nice there's clearly a family resemblance here um one thing if you have a chance to buy these beers which are both exported here to the united states uh i think one thing that really Distinguish two things actually that jump out to me that really distinguish Fuller's beers. Uh, that the yeast is quite pronounced. American beers we we're so in love with hops that we often American breweries don't want to have a lot of yeast character. But when you're talking about a, a balanced 4.7 percent beer, that yeast really comes to the fore. And here you get some kind of marmalade, uh, 
stewed fruit quality. Especially but, in the ESP. Yeah, yeah very nice. Um, and it's also, you, are you checking out the minerals here? This stuff, this is some really minerally water. Mm -hmm. Do you know where they get the water? I can't remember from our trip. Uh, I do. I don't know where they get the water, but um, I've been corresponding recently with a brewery and the new uh, head brewer there, not head brewer, head, it's a, a nomenclature note. In in England, the master brewer is called the head brewer. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the head brewer is usually the guy who actually does the brewing and the master brewer is the guy who hobnobs with the hoi polloi. In England, uh, the head brewer is the, the guy in the suit and the, the line brewer there is a woman now and her name is uh, Georgina Young. And she emailed and, and said uh, that they uh, burtonized the hell out of their water. Oh, okay. That was my question, yeah. essentially, yeah. So uh, I think it's not natural water. They, they burtonize it. So that's why we're getting all this mineral content. And, and for the layperson, burtonizing means? Uh, uh, Burton-upon-Trent was the famous uh, city in the Midlands where the, uh, uh, the, the style of Burton, which later evolved in the style of IPA, and um, was the place where pale ales came from. It's like one of the most important brewing cities in the world. Um, that's it's a famous city there, and they have really hard water. So when other breweries Burtonize their water, they're making it uh, resemble the mineral content that they have in Burton, which has um, gypsum mainly, and then a bunch it has other other ingredients which are too technical really delve into and i don't have my notes with me so. yeah and a word of caution to homebrewers out there we've tried this we did better now but when you're out to burtonize your water go easy on the salts that's right <laughs> otherwise it tastes salty yeah it can get very <laughs> salty we've had that mistake before uh well these are really quite lovely and actually tasting them side by side is revealing because i i now that i'm looking for it i see the family resemblance absolutely it it it's totally plausible that they come from the same batch. And I mentioned our, our visit to the Fuller's Pub because that happened on the evening before we visited Fuller's. And we sat around drinking their beers. And, and I would not have clued into that at all. I would not have uh, had a Chiswick and a London Pride and ESB and necessarily thought they were the same beer. Of course, they would have had a resemblance, but I would have just assumed that was kind of like the house character of the beer. Right. Um, but no, in fact, <laughs> they're all different blends of the, of, of, of the same beer. So, Patrick, let's talk a little bit about the economics of this this whole thing here. Uh, I'm doing that thing that I said I wouldn't do. The uh, that's our that's all right. That's, a, that's our first podcast, so you'll have to bear with us. Um, so, one thing: a lot of these old English breweries are uh, old Victorian-style breweries. We later toured the Green King Brewery, and they spent ten million pounds to make sure that it had its exact Victorian. Uh, all the coppers were restored. Everything was restored to its pristine Victorian uh, standing. Uh, Fuller's didn't make that decision. They decided to install a brand new brewery. They have a state-of-the-art, yep. totally stainless brewery. They do. And they could have brewed any kind of beer they wanted. When we visited Adnams later, they also did that, and they brewed beers that were optimized for their their new brewing system. They didn't. They made they burtonized their water and they made beers that tasted like English ales. They didn't brew them the English way. Mm -hmm. So here's Fuller's. It's 21st century. They're growing like a weed, and they decide they're going to still do this uh, party guile brewing. So wh what's that all about? It's really confusing to me that somebody would stick with these kind of old uh, uh, methods. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. So, you know, I, I write a lot about the economics of beer, and 
for me, the the most important economic aspect of beer is economies of scale. I mean, there are, the economies of scale are, are, are important to, to many industries, but beer is particularly important. The, the, the more you scale up the production process, typically the lower the cost per ounce of the beer you make. And uh, this is all just a, a question of about, you know, economy of scale is all about efficiency. How, how do you get the most product out of the inputs that you put in? And part of those inputs are ingredients, and part of those inputs are things like plant and equipment and labor. So part of what the economy of scale in, in, in beer is, is exactly that, is you can be, brew a lot more stuff for the amount of equipment you need if you do it at a large scale. You can have fewer people involved in the uh, per ounce of beer in the, in the process. But this is one where I think it's, uh, at its heart, it's really about economies of scale in terms of ingredients. So you're getting absolutely the most out of the barley that you're, the malted barley that you're bringing into the brew house, uh, potentially. Um, I'd be really interested to hear, and maybe in some future uh, podcast we can ask a modern brewer uh, about, about this. Um, I seem to recall that John Keeling at the time referenced efficiency about, uh, I think you were asking him about whether the there was something about the character of the beer to do it this way rather than to do do it separately, but to do a party guile instead, whether that was something essential to the character of the beer. And as I recall, he had a very economical answer. Yeah, he sent me an email, uh, and I'll, I'll quote from it. It says, it's quite simple, really. Party guiles are the most efficient way of using a mash tun, both in terms of speed and in terms of extract. It's not complicated and is rather simple and elegant. I had this theory. So one thing, you know, when you when you brew beer, there's a lot of people who don't brew beer don't realize that in complex biochemistry that goes on when you when you boil things at, at different gravities you extract different qualities from the malt you extract different qualities from the hops i figured there's got to be some kind of other justification for why they would go bother to do this whole thing in terms of the quality of the beer one thing we should mention here is um uh, the three beers, the three classic beers that are made in this process, ESB, London Pride, and Chiswick Bitter, have all won champion beer of England. So they're among the most uh, lauded and decorated beers uh, in England. They're widely recognized as some of the best beers in the world. So the quality here seems like a, a big the, – the, the process and the quality seem to be related somehow. And I asked him about that, and he's this flinty Mancunian, and he he said, no, no, it's all just about pure uh, – uh, it, it's like totally pragmatic. We, pure efficiency, yeah. Pure efficiency. Which begs the question: Why don't all brewers do this? Exactly. So, so I put that is, to you. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a bit of a mystery. I, so there's I have two answers for this. The the easy answer is for the United States. Why we don't see it in the United States is we don't have the same tradition uh, that England does of having these different uh, classes of beer by ABV. In fact. I remember we were in a pub. This is in Burton. We can have another future podcast about Burton. But we were in the Burton Bridge Brewery, and they had their beer list up. And it was all in terms of ABV, alcohol by volume. And, in fact, the prices were all relative to ABV, alcohol by volume. So those consumers are very in tune to this this sort of gradients of beer. Uh, I don't think Americans are that way. They want different beers when they pick up different bottles if it's from the same brewery. So I'm just, I, I would expect that part of the reason is just the, the the lack of sort of a market for the same the same stuff here. Although, having said that, we're starting to see things like session IPAs and things that might in fact uh, work toward party gal brewing. Uh, 
the second answer I have is uh, that though it may be efficient if uh, if you're used to it, um, it may not if if you're not if this is not a system that you have sort of built into your brewery where you can take these uh, different uh, beers and blend them together and um, do this successfully, then it may be sort of a, a difficult process to uh, to start from scratch. In other words, you need to be able to handle these. I think it, it, they're always brewing uh, one of these beers uh, staggered, so they would always have the right beers on hand to blend properly. And it also is probably a way to, to, to help sort of deal with, it doesn't sound at all from talking to John Keeling and from looking at the brewery that they have any sort of efficiency issues, but it's also a way that you can make up for any sort of uh, loss of efficiency you might get in a particular beer. You can keep blending to exactly your uh, uh, your specifications. Right. We should. I just want to say uh, for those those people out there who are really familiar with the brewing process, it is an incredibly elegant system. Uh, the the way they do this is they they, they begin uh, with a, a big the the mash uh, and they draw. So they, they're going to make, they have two mash tons. This mm -hmm. is, brewers will especially appreciate this. They have two mash tons. They start one mash, and while they're drawing it off, they start the next mash. They draw the first mash into a kettle, uh, and then while the while that one is draining, the other one is, is uh, mashing. Once that one's drained, they, put, they start it for the second one. Then they draw the second mash off into the same kettle. So they have the two strong worts in the same kettle. Then they put the two the smaller worts into another kettle, so they only end up actually with two kettles, one of a very strong wort, one of a very weak wort, uh, and then they boil those and they use the same hops at the same additions in both of them. They use about two thirds uh, of the hops in the big kettle and a third of the hops word. in the little kettle. Yep. And then they actually go all the way through to pitching the yeast. And right after they pitch the yeast, that's when they begin the blending process, and they blend four beers out of that. So in a in a and and actually Patrick and I tried we wanted to see how this thing would work for the home brewing mm -hmm. and it, there's there's it's an active day and there's a lot going on but at the end of the day you end up with two batches of beer in not so much longer than it takes you to to brew one batch of beer and additionally you get all nearly all of the sugar out of the wa out of the uh, grains that's available so there's almost nothing left behind and i can imagine these these flinty old uh, English brewers, they probably are like, how do you know? I don't want to leave. That's money on the table. I got to get all that sugar out of there. Yeah, uh, I, I, th I think that's 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 right. And, and what I was trying to reference is that it's it's a it's a bit of a, de a delicate dance that you're doing with the with the uh, the mash tuns and the kettles, and so they have it down to quite an art. And at the end of the day, when you've got these two things and you're blending, it's totally easy to blend any beer you want. You just have the things. And and what you were saying is right you're always going to, it, it not only helps with efficiency, but it actually helps you make a really consistent product too, because you have, when you're blending, you can make any, the strength of any beer you want. Yeah. So if you can do it and if you've got it down to a T like Fuller's does, it makes all kinds of sense on the supply side. And in England, it makes sense on the demand side because these, this is a tradition in English brewing. It's a traditional series of English ales uh, that there is a, a market for and a demand for. And so I want to take us down just a, a, a slight little segue here. I'm interested to know, because I've read here and there uh, statements about how this sort of gradients of beer, the, the bitter, the best bitter, the extra special bitter, which is sort of the, the low, medium, and high in terms of alcohol, came about uh, during a time of post-war scarcity of ingredients. Is that, is that true or is that apocryphal? 
Ah, I'm really glad that you uh, just sprang this on me and didn't let me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, this uh, is not in the notes. Yeah, folks. not in the notes. We're going off the we're going off the grid here. Uh, so we got to go back to uh, what happened in 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 the wars uh, to explain this a little bit. Yep. So the the, the two world wars were incredibly brutal uh, to all European breweries, um, but particularly in the in the UK. Um, not only did they have rationing, so the UK is cut off from anybody else, so it's especially brutal there. So they had rationing, but not only that rationing, they had a big tax hike uh, between the two uh, world wars, I believe. Uh, and over the course, so when you when you look at the period of time between the world, the start of uh, World War One and the end of World War Two, you're talking about a couple of decades. There was a period where there was no war in between there, mm -hmm. but it was a long enough time for palates to shift, and so people became more interested in uh, lighter beers. So I think what what actually happened was before the wars, uh, there was there were almost no beers below six percent. It was sort of like the United States is now. We don't really drink session beers. By the end of the Second World War, the most popular uh, style in England was mild ale, three three point five percent. Uh, bitters weren't actually even that popular. So when they started to filter back in, the most popular bitter style was the standard bitter, mm -hmm. around 4%, uh, maybe a little bit less. But there was this, there's long been a tradition dating back to the uh, uh, middle of the uh, 19th century of, of pale ales. They were called pale ales more than bitters. Right. And those would have been around 6%, which was now what we would, you know, uh, Fuller's ESB is a 6% beer. So we're talking, this gradation goes through that period. So I think what happened is they were meeting consumer demands. The, the vast majority of people uh, by the 1960s when bitters were becoming ascendant were interested in uh, the sessionable ones. But then there were still people who were interested in slightly stronger, more flavorful or more flavorful beers. Yeah, and I can interject just an anecdotal evidence, which is uh, the time when my mother was growing up in London. My grandfather was a veteran of World War II, uh, extremely, extremely price sensitive. And I think that was definitely a tradition in post-war Britain. And people were uh, very attuned to value for money. And so they were very much constantly making the calculation about price they were paying for the beer and the alcohol they were getting in the beer. And, uh, and I think there was a much larger premium placed on a beer that you could drink, you could both afford and drink for a few hours in a pub talking to your mates, um, then sort of the big burly beers that we tend to like here in the Pacific Northwest now. So so it's very interesting. So I think that's that partly explains the party guy. I, I don't know. It's it's still a bit of a an economic puzzle to me why Fuller's seems to be a bit unique in 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 brewing at a part with a party guy system, but um but it makes sense. It's efficient. It is efficient and I guess part of it too is when you make a, a beer as good as these beers are, um, why mess with it? That's right. So last thing, last thing I want to talk about in terms of our uh, visit to Fuller's was uh, we had a very interesting conversation with uh, John Keeling, Derek Prentice, his apprentice, I suppose. <laughs> Who is no longer there. Yeah, he's no longer there. And I'm sure apprentice would not be uh, uh, the right uh, term to describe him. But um, uh, second in command, let's put it that way. Uh, in fact, we had lunch with him. We were... We were taste, tasting some beers that they had been um, sent or brought uh, that were um, quite big sort of American IPAs. And, and that, that sent John off on a soliloquy about sort of appreciating smaller beers, more subtle flavors. 
And I think that's another interesting aspect of uh, the English beer culture, especially uh, for traditional ales, is that the difference between a London Pride and an ESB is not so great to an American palate, I suppose, but it's quite a bit different to an English palate. And those subtle tastes and subtle flavors that are more about the malts and the yeasts are... Uh, are a lot of what English ale is about and what I really appreciate in drinking them. Yeah, I'm reminded uh, we've been in in uh, uh, England. I, it actually wasn't that long, but we, we'd been drinking enough beer that by the time we got to Yorkshire, I remember there was a Yorkshire strong ale, and you and I both, and it was 5%. <laughs> and you, you and I were like, we saw it, and we thought, ooh, that really is strong. We, we knew then we, and then we both had a set, a double take and we realized, Oh, we've been, we've been here long enough. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's not really a very strong beer. Yeah. And, and, and constantly throughout our travels, we would talk and, and, and they all thought that this, this tradition of American IPAs that are 6.5% was just absolutely completely insane. <laughs> they did. <laughs> I mean, a strong beer there is yeah. 5% beer. Uh, and they don't almost never brew anything even close. They really regarded us as uh like we were in our our period of juvenilia, we we were we, ultimately we would learn what real beer was. That's right. Okay, and I have to. So before we go, I have to say this one uh, amusing anecdote uh, about Fuller's, which is, we were there, uh, and fascinatingly, we were there when the hop vendor came. Oh yeah, this you is good. This? Oh, yeah. Of course I do. <laughs> so we should say that this was the first uh, brewery we visited. It was the first brewery I visited on my uh, travels for researching the beer bible, and it was a day after we landed. So we were. We were completely jet lagged, and it was a slightly uh, strange experience. And we walk in, and then the guy from uh, SS Steiner, an international brewing, uh, international hop guy, comes in, and he's got he's got hop samples. He's got these these compressed bricks of loose leaf hops. They come from the they're called core samples. So they 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 have a device that goes into the center of the bale and pulls out a core. And so and so these very experienced hop buyers, uh, John Keeling and Derek Prentice. Where they're examining these. In fact, you know, they choose the bale itself. So these core samples from specific bales, and they they like some and not the others. Uh, but one of the hops that they were trying was. So we should say uh, a little bit of background. Uh, Fuggle hop is one of the most important hops in England, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been so beset by blight in the last uh, 10 or 15 years that it's really dying out. It's hard to source Fuggle, so they're looking for a replacement. And one of the ones they're using to replace it is an American hop that is uh, mostly from Fuggle stock. You will know it as Willamette. That's right. Uh, but of course, they didn't know it as Willamette. They knew it as Willamette, as most people who aren't familiar with the river that runs through Portland, Oregon, our fair city, uh, is called. And so uh, we had the, the pleasure, the delight of Correcting their pronunciation. <laughs> they, yeah, they said, oh, Willamette. And the SS Steiner guy and both Prentice and Keeling were saying Willamette. And we were looking at each other startled and confused. Should we Did, tell them? Should we tell them? <laughs> this is John Keeling. The name is uh, John Keeling. We didn't it know what to do. our river. We do know what it's pronounced. But we, uh, we, uh, we finally bucked up our courage and let them know. They were, yeah. And they were happy to know how it was actually pronounced. Yeah, and we should say they were amazing hosts. They're incredibly gracious hosts. Uh, it was a joy to be there. Um, they took us down to the, the caves where they have all their reserve and, and uh, aged beer. They gave us a bottle of two, uh, a vintage 2000 uh, vintage ale. That's right. To that take we, home. 
that we brought back to the new world. So thank you very much to Fuller. It's also a shout out to Fuller's for uh, getting in touch with us. We, we had a little bit of trouble, ironically, finding uh, ESB in town um, uh, in order to prepare for this pod. And uh, Jeff sent out a tweet asking people if they knew where he could find ESB. And Fuller's, in fact, responded themselves and said, hey, we'll send you some. But uh, that was just a couple of days ago. We haven't had a chance to receive it. But anyway, that was very nice of them to do so. They're an incredibly responsive brewery. Um, and they're, they're also, for, for people who are interested in uh, English craft beer, they've been incredibly supportive of the now 62 uh, London craft breweries there. They're kind of the, the grandfather, and I think everybody looks to John Keeling as sort of the, uh, the, the sort of wise man. He's the Dumbledore of uh, English brewing and they always look to him to kind of let him know. What's yeah, that was fun. We, we visited probably in equal parts sort of old traditional English brewers and these new uh, craft brewers that resemble more sort of American style companies that are kind of brand new and doing their own thing and being, being kind of wild. And uh, what was really nice to see is the, um, at that point, sort of the, the, the beginnings of these connections between those older style and the newer style, both of whom are far outside the, the macro lager world, um, but coming coming from two completely different uh, places um, and doing craft beer. And I think those two things are getting closer and closer now. Yeah. Actually, on that note, we have a really great quote from uh, John Keeling when we were there that we can play for you now, where he talks a little bit about the character of craft beer and uh, and his own beer and how those two relate to each other. I think on one side of the equation, you have to have quality and you have to have consistency. And that is balanced on the other side of the equation with flavor and character. Mm -hmm. And there are breweries that specialize in producing high quality, very consistent beers. And there are companies like Budweiser and Carlsberg and Heineken. They produce high quality, highly consistent beers. But maybe they forgot about the other side of the equation, which is to have some flavor and some character in the bit. Then there are the craft brewers who really go over the top sometimes on character and flavor. You can buy a pint of their beer and think, gosh, you know, this is a wonderful pint. You can buy it again a week later and you say, well, you know, it's not the same. I don't recognize it as that beer. And I say to these people, because we do get involved, we're very much involved with the craft beer scene. I say, look... What I want from London Pride or any Fuller's beer is when you go and order a pint of it, I want you to recognise it as London Pride. Yes, I want it to occasionally surprise you in that, oh, today I'm a little bit more malty or caramely or hoppy or fragrant or whatever, so that you're having uh, a dialogue with that beer, (laughs) you're noticing things about that beer and and it interests you and it involves you because of that. So anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, you can follow us and be in touch with us. Uh, Jeff blogs at Beervana. He's also blogging at uh, All About Beer. All About Beer under uh, is it called the Beer Bible blog? Still, it is the Beer Bible blog. Okay, and he's also tweeting at Beervana. Uh, you can find me through the Beeronomics uh, blog. Uh, I also tweet at Beeronomics. Um, and uh, until next time, cheers, Jeff. Hey, cheers, Patrick. Let's uh, let's go out with a nice slurp of uh, Fuller's here. Yeah, find yourself some Fuller's and try it out for yourself. Cheers to party out. <laughs> <laughs>